chapter 2. We will continue what we weren't able to finish last week. Looking at the faithfulness and the love of God, which knows no limitations and cannot be stopped. This week I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about the things that ought to occupy our minds and our hearts and certainly are worthy of our affections. There are so many things in our lives that get so noisy and so busy at times uh, that we begin to focus on things that really don't matter, that uh, are not the things that Scripture drives us towards. And we can get sidetracked in so many different ways, and I find myself so guilty of that, uh, so focused on things that don't really matter. And then I go back to the book of Hosea, and I read in Hosea uh, what really matters. What should we think upon? What should we meditate on? And certainly the love and the grace and the mercy of God um, is a worthy theme for every one of our thoughts uh, at every moment of our day. And so um, we want to draw our attention to that gospel truth, that redeeming truth, even present in the Old Testament, here present in a very difficult story, the story of Hosea and his relationship with Gomer. And I I pray, I really do, pray that God would melt us this morning. Pray that we would not leave here the same, thinking about the Christian life, thinking about the gospel, thinking about God, thinking about our church, the same after the Word of God sufficiently melts us by the most important thing, and that is God Himself and the mercy and grace that He demonstrates to sinners. Out of respect for the reading of God's Word, would you join me in standing as we read from Hosea chapter 2, verses 14, down through chapter 3, verse 5. So, 2.14 through 3.5 this morning. Again, God now speaking to Israel, making these covenant promises of grace to them. He says in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Remember last week, he said, will speak kindly into or onto her heart. Then I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor, that place of judgment that once was. I will give her the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, and will no longer call me Baali. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will not be mentioned by their names anymore. And in that day I will also make a covenant for them, with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the sky, creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make them lie down in safety." I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. And it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. 
I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who have not, had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I also will be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Father, We're just like Gomer and we are just like Israel. In our hearts, our minds are prone to substitute, substitute any number of things for you. God, we can make an idol. We can make a religion. We can make our confidence. We can make our hope out of so many things. And Father, often we do. And we stray away from those first things. We stray away from those things which are of primary importance. And we take our eyes off You and we're lifted up in our pride and we're lifted up in what we think is best And we become self-sufficient, Father. And we become detached from your love. And we become detached from your holiness. We become detached from your grace. And we walk away and we end up like Gomer in the arms of someone else. We end up like Israel while giving lip service to Yahweh. We worship the gods of the Baals. And we expect... Out of those things in our lives, Father, the growth and the health and the strength spiritually, the peace that only You can give. And God, You are right to judge us. Your holiness, Your righteousness is absolutely perfect, Father. And we confess that this morning. Father, we confess that hell is our just desert. We do not deserve anything less. And You are right and Your glory is magnified in those who are judged. But Father, we're thankful this morning that Your mercy and Your grace have intervened. Father, we're thankful for Your redeeming faithfulness, Your covenant promises to Your people. 
And God, may we see that unfold, that you are a God who does not delight in the death of the wicked. Father, you delight in the salvation of your people. Father, may it not be only your wrath that breaks us this morning. Father, may it be the grace of a God who comes to us again and again and again to save us, that breaks our heart, that renews a right fear of God, that drives us from the sin of our idols, the arms of our idols, to the arms of redeeming and purifying and loving God. May we milk these truths from the text of your word this morning. Father, we are absolutely dependent on your Holy Spirit to change us, to place a right belief and a right focus, a right love in our hearts. And so, Father, I ask in total dependence on your spirit that you would come and do the work that only you can do, applying your word to our hearts and thereby changing us. May Christ be honored. May the gospel be seen this morning. Father, if there's one who has a form of religion, but not a personal interaction with a God of grace, who's not experienced His saving grace this morning, God save sinners. And Father, for sinners who are saved, call us to daily repentance, daily casting ourselves on Your mercy, that it would be all of You and none of us. And we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. If I recall correctly, we made it down through verse 18 of chapter 2 last week. And we discussed that the promises of God, just quickly recapping, are not only the covenant promises of God that He says, I am going to single-handedly win back the heart of Israel. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to woo her back to me. But then he begins to make the promises to her that would happen in her future and and even on into the millennial kingdom as we find here in verses uh, verse 18 where God begins to make promises that he's going to restore everything that was back to its condition before the fall and 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 I just I can't even imagine what that's like that just it defies uh human understanding, human uh, logic, uh, to be able to go back and place ourselves at a time and in a place where sin was not, and where the effects of sin did not plague us as a human race. And God says, I'm going to do again that thing that I did before. I created it once, and it was like this. Notice he says he would make a covenant with the beast of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground. He would abolish the bow. In other words, war and sword and and all of these things. And everyone would lie down in safety. And that's going to be a great day. It's going to be a wonderful time that we experience what it was like on earth before the fall. The lion lays down with the lamb. The discovery channel will be out of business at that point. No more lions pouncing on the poor wounded wildebeest. Everything's going to be perfect. 
God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this by my own grace, by my own strength, by my own initiative. And now God moves not only into that area of, uh, of, of creating all things new again, but he begins a new betrothal in verse 19. And this is really the theme and, and the heartbeat and the tone of, of everything else that needs to be said this morning. But look at verse 19. Look what God does for an adulterous wife, Israel. Or in Hosea's very personal case, Gomer. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. God begins to make what I think is the capstone and the most beautiful of all of his promises here. God, beginning in verse 19, reiterates his covenant promises of an eternal relationship with the nation of Israel that will not be broken. God says to them, I'm going to betroth you to me in such a way you will never break the covenant again. It's going to be like it should have been the first time. It's going to be a wonderful marriage. It is going to be a wonderful relationship that should have eternity as its scope. And I am going to do this. I'm not going to ask you to do this. There, there, there is a difference in Western thought when it comes to marriage and betrothal than there was in Eastern thought. We go out and we buy a ring. And usually we don't go so far as to do that, right, man? Unless we have a pretty good idea what the answer is going to be. We're not, usually we're not big risk takers. Usually there has already been the conversation of marriage. Usually, uh, not in all cases, but usually there has been uh, something communicated back to us that, yes, you're the one that I would like to marry. Uh, those kinds of things. But that's not the way it worked in their culture. There were arranged marriages. There were statements of betrothal. I choose you. You're coming with me. Your father said so. I paid the dowry for this thing. I'm going to seal this up. And God says, that's how it is. I'm not going to ask Israel, do you want to come back? Would you like for me to be your God? He says, no, I'm going to... to, to I'm going to envision this. I'm going to take the initiative to accomplish this. I'm going to seal this. And because I am the one who does it, it's going to last forever. I am forever. Remember, we talked about last week that one of the things that we need to focus on in the book of Hosea is not just an act of grace, but it is the very God of grace that we should focus on. Yes, God does massive acts of grace in the book of Hosea, but not just because he does them. He does them because that is him. 
1 John tells us that God is love. God is not only love, but God is eternal. And this covenant that he makes is going to be eternal because he is eternal and he's the one holding this thing together. So it goes on and on and on without end. But I want you to notice in the text, he he makes this promise three times. Three times he says, I will betroth. I will betroth. I will betroth. Now, we all understand that that that's significant. When something is repeated in the Old Testament, twice is to get your attention. Three times is to absolutely drive home an unchangeable point. Can you think of something in the Old Testament that was repeated three times that we must grab a hold of? The first thing that comes to my mind is Isaiah chapter 6. When the angels before God are crying out, Holy, holy, holy. This is a literary device to really reiterate the the, the finality, the, the absolute sureness of the thing. And God says, I will betroth. I will betroth. I will betroth. I will do this. God Notice what he says, I, I will betroth you in righteousness and judgment or in justice. God is going to do this. He's going to make the betrothal. He's going to pay the dowry. And he's going to make the consummation possible. Even though Israel, even though Gomer had played the part of the unfaithful spouse, God says, I am not going to allow this to interrupt my eternal relationship with my people. Now, I want you to fast forward with me. In the understanding of the Jewish mind based on the law, what happens when someone was unfaithful? It was bad news, wasn't it? Somebody was going to die. Somebody had to be stoned. And at the very least, even if they weren't stoned, they would be put away in shame and in disgrace. Now think about the beginning of the New Testament with Joseph and Mary. Here is Mary. She's found to be pregnant. There can only be one Solution to this, Joseph was an upright man. He had not done this thing, and yet here is his betrothed, and she's expecting. And so according to the Jewish mindset, Joseph was planning to do what? Put her away. He's going to get rid of her. She had broken the law. And now, now, now Joseph is going to put her away from him. He's going to walk away from this relationship. And that's the mentality of the Jewish mind. You are either stoned for this or you are forever put away by this. We don't just overlook it. And so here, God has a betrothed. A bride-to-be. And this bride has gone out and she has adulterated herself. She has made herself worthy of stoning. She has made herself worthy of being put away. And look what God says in verse 19. This betrothal is going to be in righteousness. But she's not righteous. 
It's going to be injustice. But she's not just. It's going to be in loving kindness and compassion. But God, she hates you right now. And he says, then I will betroth you in faithfulness. What an oxymoron. At this time, to look at Gomer and say, Gomer, faithfulness. Israel, faithfulness. Are you out of your mind? That's like calling Jezebel chastity. They don't mix. And God says, I am going to reconstruct this relationship with a betrothed bride, and it is going to be righteous and just and loving and compassionate and faithful. That is so far out of the realm of their comprehension at this point in their existence as to almost be laughable. They don't want these things. They certainly don't embody these things. And yet God says, I am going to constitute a new relationship that is characterized by these things. How? Is he just going just gonna to kind of overlook it? Just going to kind of ignore their life? No, he is going to create a new covenant. And this new covenant is going to be written on their hearts. And he is going to transform their mind and their heart. And we understand where this is all leading. This is leading to Christ. This is leading to the gospel. This is leading to the king of kings. We, this is leading to the seed of David who is going to make all this right. He will do these things. He will reinitiate because He is a God whose love cannot be stopped. Now I want you to notice the blessings that He brings to the marriage. I want you to notice what He does. He says it's going to come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. Now, there's something interesting here. This is, again, one of those authoritative declarations. God isn't just speaking. He's not just up posturing. God says, uh, I am declaring this. This is an authoritative, prophetic, binding statement that I'm going to make. It will come about in that day that I will respond, says the Lord. Now, how has God responded so far? <laughs> it's not been good. So I'm going to lead them away. I'm going to hedge them in. I'm going to allow them to be confused. I'm going to allow them to be put in captivity. That's how I've responded thus far. But there is coming a day, declares the Lord, that as certainly as I put them away, I'm going to take them back. And notice how he's going to do it. God is going to respond to the heavens. God's going to look down on the heavens. And he's going to say to the heavens, heavens, I want you to respond that heavens then in turn respond to the earth. The earth then is going to respond to the grain that is planted in the earth, to the new wine that is planted, to the oil that is planted. And then these things are going to respond to the earth and they are going to produce fruit in Jezreel. And we've talked about Jezreel. Jezreel is the place where all of this is occurring. It's the, the valley 
I, I looked it up this morning, uh, just going through, getting ready again. I've got a, a great uh, Bible program that, that allows me to go to a map and then I can uh, square off an area on the map and then it drops me into a 3D model and I can fly through these valleys uh, thanks to the digital age that we live in. And so I, I went to Jezreel and I dropped into the valley and, and it is literally a fertile green valley that, that goes to the, to the central part of Israel and then all the way out to the Mediterranean Sea. It's gorgeous. And this is the place where they set up their idols that they thought would bring rain because they needed the rain to water the earth so that the earth in turn would uh, allow them to plant crops and those crops then would sustain them. That's what they depended on. If they didn't have this, these people died. Israel doesn't look a whole lot different than West Texas. It's desert for the most part. And so they're utterly dependent on these fertile areas. And God says, in that time, as a gift to my betrothed, I am going to bring about the things that you need and that you desire so that you can live. And I'm going to do this in a place unilaterally that proves I am God and you are my people. Remember the name Jezreel means God sows. The Baals weren't sowing in the valley. God was. God's going to magnify Himself. And it is going to be in that place where they had uh, adulterated themselves. God is going to sow His people back into the land. And He's going to have compassion on those who had not obtained compassion. Those covenant breakers, those unfaithful spouses, Israel. I am going to show in that place compassion on those whom I had not previously shown compassion. And there I will call them my people and they will call me my God. The overwhelming response to God's faithfulness in that day, the overwhelming response to God's grace will be that one statement. You are my God. Go back to verse 16 of chapter 2. Looking at the marriage relationship, you will call me Ishi, literally husband or my man. You will no longer call me Baali, uh, some cruel taskmaster. You'll call me husband. You will call me my man. You will call me intimately yours. And this is going to occur in that day. But brothers and sisters, this did not occur because Israel did something to better themselves. This happened because God turned His loving favor towards them. They're not going to remain in this forever covenant because they're faithful. They're going to remain in this forever covenant because God is faithful to them and sustaining them and keeping them. Jude 24 says now to Him who is able to keep us from falling. We'll not reach the shores of heaven and look at God and say, God, I am one awesome 
spiritual endurance runner. I made it. Aren't I something? We'll get to heaven and we'll bow at his feet and we will say, the only reason I'm here is because number one, you saved me. Number two, you kept me. That's why I'm here. It's not him who runs or him that wills, as Scott read this morning in in Romans 9. It is God who is faithful. It is God who is sustaining us. The God of grace that is pouring of himself into us to redeem a people bent on our idolatry, bent on our immorality, bent on our rebellion, bent on our sin. That God in Christ calls us home. God chose them. God betrothed them. God made promises to them. God will be faithful to them. This is how God works, period. From beginning to end of eternity, God works this way. He is faithful. He is gracious. And it reflects all that He is. Now, I want us to just consider this morning the final illustration from Hosea's life and then Hosea's own personal tragic story, his own terrible marriage is going to go away. We won't see him again. This is the end of the line for this illustration that God gives us in his life using his marriage as the example. And so we have a final illustration from Hosea's life this morning that demonstrates the love of God fully for us and really becomes the crux of the matter for the entire nine chapters to come. He says this, Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by her husband. That's an odd statement. Go And you're going to have to go because she's not here. She's out there. You still love her, and it should be that that she's in a home, she's with you, and you're loving her here. But I'm telling you, you're going to have to go if you want to love her. She has, in other words, she has been unfaithful to you, and she has left. You are still loving her. Go and love a woman who is loved by her husband. Yet she is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and even love raisin cakes. So, Hosea says this. This is Hosea giving... He's writing his biography now. His autobiography. Listen to what he says. So he does. And he says, So I bought her for myself. Wait a minute. Who's Gomer? Who is she? Stranger? She's his wife. He has to go out and buy her. This should be sending up red flags and all kinds of thoughts in your mind. So he goes out and he buys her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, sacrifice or sacred pillar and without ephod or household idols. 
And afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Now, I want us to consider some thoughts from this brief chapter. Again, the command of God comes to Hosea, and he says, Go love an adulterous woman who is even now in a relationship with a man who is not her husband. You are her husband. You have never waned, Hosea. You have never been unfaithful to her. She has been unfaithful to you. And I am telling you, go bring her back. Hosea was commanded to pursue her with a pure love that never had a chance of dying. We never once see that Hosea in this story ever one time says, you know what, I think I'm done. I think that's it. I think I'm going to close the chapter on this marriage. Never one time does he say that. Because that's not how God treats us. That's not how God treats his own people. God never intended to destroy Israel. He intended to love Israel. Just like Hosea determined to love a woman who had turned to another man. And grossly so. Notice what he says. God says, this is how disgusting this whole thing has become. He says, the sons of Israel turn to other gods. What gods? Uh, any number of the, the gods in the Baal cult, the fertility cult, the, the, the prostitution cult. And he says, they also love raisin cakes. So what? See, raisin cake is biblical speak for what we would call an aphrodisiac. Solomon uses this in Song of Solomon 2.5, Sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. He was thought to have some type of euphoric power about them. Who knows how they were made, but apparently they did something to heighten man's uh, sense of uh, fulfillment in that regard. And God says they're not just going after idols, they are illicitly doing things to make this euphoric and to uh, heighten their pleasure in other gods. This is how they have pursued every ill behavior they can think of. But Hosea, go love her. Go bring her home. And so Hosea does. Now I want you to notice what Hosea does. Hosea goes and he buys her. Any of you have to buy your wife again today? You see, the dowry had already been paid once. The deal was sealed. They had a child together. This marriage was complete. And now he is having to go out into a place and buy her back. Uh, By the way, the price that he pays tells us that she had sold herself as a slave. Fifteen shekels of silver is a common amount to be paid for a slave in that day. And he says, go buy something that you already possess the right to. 
Because this thing, this woman has gone and she has sold herself into bondage to some immoral man. You're going to have to buy her back again. Do you know that's what redemption means? Redemption means a buying back. When God redeems us, and the New Testament in particular speaks of the word redemption, it is literally uh, connotating and bringing up the imagery of buying somebody out of a slave market. You're buying a slave. When God redeems us, He buys us out of the slave market of sin with the blood of His own Son. I want you to think about this with me. In the New Testament, and scholars vary in the Old Testament, some say 30 shekels of silver, 30 pieces of silver, would have been the appropriate amount of a slave. He buys 15. She's not even... If that theory holds, then she's not very worthy. She's climbed down as low as you could possibly get. But then he does something else interesting. Notice the text. He says, in a homer and a half of barley. So he gives this man who had bought his wife for immoral services. He gives him 15 shekels of silver. And then he gives him a homer and a half of barley. So that's kind of weird. Well, not really. Numbers chapter 5 and verse 15 says that barley is one of the things that is to be given when a person is accused of adultery. Listen to, listen to the text. Numbers 5, Then shall the man shall bring then his wife to the priest, bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley. Of barley meal, and he shall uh, not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Now, this says that he is to bring one tenth of an ephah, and yet the text here says that he buys her back for a homer and a half of barley. I did a little research to find out what's the difference in an ephah and what's the difference in a homer. What, how, did they, how did they stack up? How did they compare? Well, an ephah is half of what a homer is. And he is commanded only to give one-tenth of a half of a homer. So here's an ephah, which is only half of a homer, and he's only going to give 10% of that. That's all he's required by law to do before the priest for an adulterous wife. And yet we find Hosea and he's not giving a tenth of a half. He's giving twice and a half. He gives a homer and a half of the barley. He's not just going to redeem her. He is going to redeem her lavishly. 
He is going to, to pour out exponentially, infinitely more than she is worth or that is required for her. He is going to give everything for this spouse who's been so unfaithful, who has broken his heart. God says, that's how I love. I don't just give what I have to give. I go over and abundantly beyond what the need of the hour is for you, Israel. What redeeming love. And then I want you to notice his promise to protect her. He bought her, now he's going to protect her. Verse 3, then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephah or household idols. Hosea says to Gomer, his wife, as God says to Israel, remember God had already promised back in chapter 2, I'm going to hedge you in, I'm going to build a hedge around you, so when you try to go find those idols, you can't. You're going to run into this hedge. I'm I'm not going to ultimately cast you away. I'm going to hedge you in. I'm going to keep you close to me. I'm going to keep you under my divine chastisement so that you'll turn back to me when I call. And Hosea says to Gomer, I'm going to hedge you in. I'm going to bring you home. And you're going to stay with me many days. And you will not play the harlot. Praise God for his, not only his saving grace, but his sanctifying grace. I'm not going to allow sin to remain. You're not going to do this anymore, Gomer. I'm not going to let it happen. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to be changing you. He says, you shall not have a man. Hosea says, look, not only are you not going to go after any man, there's going to be a time of purification in your life. You're not even going to have me, even though I'm your husband. We're going to abstain for a while. You're not going to have any man. And so I will also be towards you. I will be faithful to you. I'm going to abstain from everything else. I'm going to prove my faithfulness to you. God does so over and over again, does He not? To His people. His faithfulness to us in spite of our own unfaithfulness as He brings us out, as He purifies us, as He sanctifies us, and there's coming a great day of consummation. That ultimate place of glorification where we're, when we are with the bridegroom. His bride is presented chaste and pure before him. Hosea says, in anticipation of that day, anticipation of that day, I am going to prepare you. I'm going to prepare you for that great day. I'm going to prepare you for that day when you will be free from idolatry. Israel, I'm going to take you into captivity. I'm going to hedge you in. I'm going to protect you from destroying yourself any further so that I prepare you for that final day so that you ultimately will not be cast away. 
will finally enjoy a restored marriage. Complete with all its intimacies. Israel is going to enjoy the, the marriage relationship with God and with Christ, her bridegroom, uh, in a new consummated relationship where she's no longer turning away. And the result of all of this is found in verse 5. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness. They're not broken by judgment anymore. They're not broken by captivity anymore. They are absolutely broken by grace. Overwhelmed with God's love and his redeeming faithfulness to them. God has always had a people and God has always had a plan and God has always been determined to bring that plan to pass and He cannot fail. Now I want you just to work quickly with me through a vast sweeping scope of redemptive history. And I want you to see that not only in the microcosm of Hosea and Gomer and the microcosm of God in Israel has God always been faithful and had a people and been determined to glorify Himself through redemption, but I want you to see it developing. Because at every stage, it gets bigger and it gets better and it gets more illustrative of a faithful, gracious God. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and He created two people to live there. Did He not? He did. And God said, this is going to be perfect, and here's how this is going to work, and I'm going to provide for everything you have, and I'm going to demonstrate my glory as a creator, my glory as a provider. I've given you everything. And those two people... Look at God and they say, in essence, it's not good enough. We want more. And so they go against the command of God and sin enters. And in this great, uh, this great betrayal, this great rebellion, sin comes into God's perfect creation and it ruins everything, right? And God said in the place where there was life, now there is death. And not only is there death for you, but there is death for every single one of your descendants. Life as you knew it is over and there is no hope. Until Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And for the first time we hear God promise the gospel through the seed of the woman. He would give birth to one that would crush the head of the serpent. And God would again get victory. But how is he going to do this? Oh, okay. Fast forward. Genesis chapter 12. What two people messed up, God now calls one man to do. And he says, out of this one man is going to be an entire nation. And out of this nation, all the world will be blessed because of one man. So Adam and Eve, it was intended for you originally. But now you've messed it up, so I'm going to create a whole nation to bring about redemption, not only for you, not only for Abraham, but now for the whole world. Israel is God's 
test case. Israel are the recipients of God's promises. They are the pilots of this redemptive program. And then Israel goes off track. Now it's not only two people that have messed up, it's an entire nation that has messed up. And God has said to that nation, I am going to judge you, but I am still going to bring about redemption even though Adam and Eve messed it up, even though you have messed it up as a nation. Now I'm going to involve the entire race of humanity in Christ. And my redemption, my glorification is not going to be a microcosm anymore. It's going to be global. Just like we read this morning in Romans chapter 9, it's not for the Jews only, but now it has gone to the Gentiles as well. The salvation of God, the covenant faithfulness of God, that His plan cannot and will not be stopped. Now Christ has come. Now the price is paid. And now salvation, redemption, It's offered not to just Adam and Eve, not to just Israel, but to all of us. You know, that kind of grace should break us. That type of overwhelming goodness and faithfulness should crush us. We should be so struck with the awe of unmerited grace that is as powerful as God is. We ought to tremble at what He's done. We ought not take for granted and say, yeah, I deserve that. In fact, I might have even helped with it a little bit. That's right. That's, that's, that, was the, that was the right thing for God. No, no, no. no we, we fall and we say unworthy. And we quit trying to find places that we have been faithful and instead we... Confess our unfaithfulness, our own sin. We throw ourselves on the mercy of a God who has always been faithful, always been gracious. I wish that at the end of their life, Jose and Gomer would have co-authored a book. That'd be kind of neat to read, wouldn't it? What was life like 50 years down the road? You know, I, I, I can imagine, I can, I can imagine that Gomer probably would have said something like this. How unworthy I am to be loved. And yet my husband put up with me and he redeemed me. He loved me out of my sin. He brought and he reinitiated this betrothal and this marriage. And 50 years later, here we are. Look at all our great, 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 great grandkids. We're a story of faithful love. Israel on that day will write a book. God says so in Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. And in that day, they're going to come trembling. And they're going to tremble before God because of His goodness, because of His mercy, because of His faithfulness. And they're going to say, we were unlovable, but God loved us.
We should have been cast off, but God brought us back. We owe everything to Him. We owe everything to His faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, that is the message that we must embrace. That we are utterly, completely unlovable, sinful people, but we have a God whose faithfulness and love knows no limits. And He saves sinners. And He redeems sinners. Let us not lose sight of the massive, massive gospel implications of this story. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for a love that chose, a love that pursues, a love that calls, and a love that redeems. Father, we are so prone to wonder. We are so bent on our sin. We are so bent on doing our own thing. But God, you are faithful when we are faithless. God, we cannot stand before you and claim anything other than your faithfulness, your grace, and your mercy that's brought us back. Father, thank you that not only do you save us, but that you sanctify us and you are preparing us for that day when our glorification is made complete. When we see Christ face to face, when we stand before your throne and we tremble at your goodness. Father, we are so unworthy. We honestly don't know why you would love us. But we're thankful that you do. And we're thankful that you do it in such a lavish and demonstrable way so that there is no question in our mind as to the character of our God, as to the power of His love to win us time after time. After we've fallen away, You win us back. And You won't let Satan win the battle. Ultimately, You win through Christ. Father, thank you for that kind of a story of love because you are love and you are faithful. Father, let that thought drive us closer to you. May we fear you because of your loving kindness. Father, we struggle with that because fear and love don't seem to go together. But Father, the fear of God is clean and it's right and it's pure and it's affected in part by your love and your goodness. Let us tremble before you. Let us be in awe of you. Let us fear such powerful love that we would worship you rightly. Father, cause us to quit trying to earn your favor cause us through the artificial standards and systems that we set up to quit trying to make you love us. Father, destroy our pride. We are proud people. And we want to think that we have a relationship with you in part because of what we've done. Father, that spirit will never be able to fully absorb the love of God monergistically, single-handedly toward us. So God, destroy our pride. 
destroy our own self-effort. It causes us to fall at the feet of a gloriously good God who single-handedly betrothed us, called us, protects us, prepares us, and ultimately seals us so that we would worship you rightly. We pray in Christ's precious name because he sealed the covenant for us on the cross. And now we have an eternal relationship with you, Father. It's in his name and by his work that we pray. Amen.